Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. You know, this is the first full week of the uh, fall season, even though it's still summer. Um, we're, we're turning now to the uh, last th- uh, third of the year, and we're trying to figure out how to do things differently. Well, our first guest is Lee Stringer. She's here to talk about the healthy workplace, which we all want but few of us get. Lee, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Don. Well, Lee, as we ask all guests, tell us a little bit about yourself personally. I find it fascinating. <laughs> well, I um, am an architect uh, by training, and I my job every day is to do workplace strategy, which means that um, I'm in there talking with organizations, large and small, about how, how they work, how teams work, how, how the company wants to change and, and grow, and then uh, work with my design team architect colleagues to uh, actually turn that dream into a physical reality. And I write a lot <laughs> on the side. Well, you wrote a book called The Healthy Workplace. Tell us what it's about. So the book is targeted at individuals, at um, leaders, and everybody in between uh, within, the, within an organization, really um, helping to describe for them what a healthy workplace looks like. And not just healthy, but really productive. <laughs> One that really is um, based in a lot of science around people and how people work and how they're motivated how they can be engaged and the like. And so the first chunk of the book is really focused on the history of work and some of the common themes that are happening in work today, like engagement and flow and all these things we you know, try every day to get um, to make us more productive. And then the second big chunk of the book is really focused on very practical, tactical things on how you can increase movement and reduce um, uh, stress and improve your sleep, even um, and tr- nutrition, all these sorts of things that actually they're behaviors that you and your team can change at work um, or strategies or technologies you can adopt, which really will help um, improve your health. And then finally, the end of it is kind of a you know, uh, tripartite format. Um, it's really like t- ties in um, the business case around health, why this is so important, why the bottom line is so impacted around um, paying attention to it, 
and also culture and how important um, a culture of health and wellness and well-being is really um, drives a lot of, of the top companies today um, and why it matters. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Okay, well, uh, you've raised a lot of issues. Let's try to try to see if I remember them in order. Now, the first part is the if if I sit, heard you right, the environment uh, where we work. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. I think um, there's a whole uh, history lesson um, summarized very quickly, of course, about you know uh, why our workplaces look the way they do today. And you know, back in ages ago, our workplace was you know the savanna. <laughs> it was you know this was many many years ago. And then, you know, it, we became farmers, and then we moved into factories, and now we work in often the modern factory, as <laughs> I affectionately call it, but places of work that um, are indoors and are, you know, pretty healthy uh, or fr from an air quality perspective a lot better than they were in the Industrial Revolution. But they still are lacking in a lot of the important things that support um, people and creativity and all the things that are important for business today. Well, uh, business today is uh, really evolving. I mean, we've come from a manufacturing uh, uh, economy to really one of service. Um, uh, can you address some of the changes that are forcing on companies in this respect? Yeah, so the movement into service um, and the knowledge workers that we all call ourselves, but, you know, folks who are really doing um, business to business with, you know, people. It's really a relationship-focused uh, and creativity-focused um, kind of world. And so a lot of what, um, just to get down to specifics, um, a lot of what I'm seeing um, in our workplaces are um, – are places that are, you know, kind of cramped or small um, and uh, dark and not a lot of green, uh, you know, very sterile. And the truth is that what make us feel more creative often is being outside, being in big spaces, big open spaces with lots of natural light. Um, and moving around um, is a wonderful way to get ideas. Um, there's all kinds of studies that show that, um, you know, with our brains plugged up, the way that we're most creative is when our brains are relaxed. And how do you get to a relaxed state of mind? Well, the least relaxed state posture and state of you know, being is crouched, Cro-Magnon style, over a laptop. <laughs> You're just not going to get your creative juices that way. Um, the best way is actually get up and move and walk around and be stimulated by um, by landscaping or or other people or things like that, and so I think as we start to shift right from the office that looks like a factory floor with rows and rows of cubes or or bench seats um, and moving into a much more um, I think that physically we're seeing a manifestation of this change when we see environments that look different or the lots of different places to sit, lots of access to the outdoors, um, lots of light, and really more human <laughs> when it comes down to it. But it taps into what we're best at, which is being um, creative. Technology can you know, do a lot of the other things that we, we had to do in the past. Well, we had someone on this program a, a year ago that talked about um, and I see it in ads in the Wall Street Journal of uh, you actually stand 
um, while you work on your computer, you don't sit. And uh, he, he claimed that this was a, a better for uh, thinking and better for um, the body. Uh, are you into that at all, or do you want to comment on that? Sure. Well, I mean, it's all the buzz, right? Sitting is the new smoking, um, and it is not very good for our bodies. I mean, when we talk to um, physicians and people who, who know a lot about this, um, they all tell us that um, one of the important things of when you stand up, um, your legs are the largest muscles in your body, and um, they pump blood. You stand up and move them, and they're pumping blood throughout your body and, and moving uh, all kinds of toxins that have been sitting um, and, you know, kind of pooling and making you feel creaky um, all day if you're, if you're sitting all day. So moving those big muscles is a really big deal. It not only um, physiologically helps reduce chronic, you know, uh, issues, deep vein thrombosis being one of them. I know we used to talk about that a lot when people were on airplanes. You get deep vein thrombosis really horrible. So the idea is to move um, regularly. You don't have to stand all day, but certainly do it on a regular basis. And, and the, else, the other thing is just that standing um, gets your brain moving. The blood moves not only through your body, but through your brain. So you're thinking more clearly. Um, you're maybe a little more focused. Um, and, and standing along with movement is kind of the one-two punch. So if you can stand every 30 minutes or so and move every hour, hour and a half, that is fantastic. Um, and some people like, uh, like myself have actually started taking conference calls kind of walking, like walking around the office or walking outside if it's not too noisy. Um, but I think the, the idea of walking and talking uh, has become a really big deal, this walking meetings kind of thing where people – you just get more ideas, again, relaxing, pulling away from your computer, pulling away from a big conference table, and just walking um, together with someone else is a very um, positive kind of uh, way to work and talk. You're not staring at each other. It's not competitive or negotiating across the table. You're both walking in the same direction looking forward, and it's a much more kind of visionary conversation. So it's something I think I know a lot of um, managers I've talked with have started doing one-on-one -on -one conversations with their staff doing walking meetings. Um, why not? Well, uh, again, it then comes down to corporations who are organized to better manage people. Uh, large corporations. Now you're, if I hear you correctly, you're, you're uh, encouraging an, an environment. I remember when they um, introduced uh, years ago the uh, office cubicles, um, you know, uh, and they were deliberately uh, lower than uh, normal uh, size of people height-wise so the managers could still see those that were walking around, etc. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying this is a good thing that it will uh, lead to better things. Am I correct on that? Yeah, there's there's all kinds of interesting studies that about the open office, which is so contentious, right? That's in the news a lot as well. Um, and you know, everybody's open office or cubicle office, if you will, looks a little different, but. Um, yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where uh, the devil's in the details, <laughs> and um, and low cubicle heights or high cubicle heights or you know enclosed spaces they can all work as long as um, they're really supportive of people and um, and our comfort level. Well, you know, uh, I've seen we've had uh, uh, several people uh, who uh, offer these. Uh, 
uh, offices, um, the, the new type of office where you get, in essence, have an office, but also you have walk around space. There's a couple of uh, companies out there. And I've gone to a couple of places. And I, I have to tell you, I'm older uh, than the average uh, new millennium, but uh, uh, I, I find them very uncomfortable because uh, uh, I've always felt that a, that an office, uh, to me, uh, enabled me to be freer uh, than being out there in the middle with everybody else. Do you want to comment on that? So there was an interesting study done by Ethan Bernstein at Harvard Business School. Um, we chatted many times about about this issue um, and some stu- some work that he's done in China. So uh, in China, he was looking at a laboratory, or excuse me, a manufacturing floor, and um, it was kind of the perfect experiment kind of space for um, looking at productivity and he. Uh, had one factory line that was open and then uh, another factory line that was actually surrounded by a hospital curtain. Um, And what they were trying to see is that, okay, well, uh, along the factory line, the team can see each other, but the managers can't see them. Um, And they were feeling, the scuttlebutt was, and what he was trying to test was that they were feeling that they were being watched. When you're sitting, in a, uh, for them anyway, sitting on the line, their managers would walk by and see what they were doing, making sure it was protocol and all that, and they, feel like they, couldn't take, they felt like they couldn't take chances. And so when he looked at the data before and after, he found, of course, and the great thing about this manufacturing line, you can measure productivity like seven different ways <laughs> along the line. And he was able to see that the group that had kind of enclosure around them, um, and it was like 20 people, you know, on this factory line, but they were tr- a trusted group along the line, and they, they would take risks, and they would try new things, and sure enough, they were more productive over time. Now, a couple things about this. One is um, he was saying, I asked him, of course, how that translates to office space and other things, um, and he's like, it's interesting. So there's this whole business um, philosophy about, and I can't remember the, um, the thought leader who brought this forward, but this idea of front um, on stage and off stage self. So your on-stage self, when you feel like you're being watched by p- people that you don't know or a lot of, you know, uh, I don't know, random people are walking by you, um, you tend to, um, or you're in front of an audience, um, you tend to uh, really go and, and, and not try new things and do what you're tried and true and um, kind of stick with your knitting. Um, whereas if you're um, kind of pulled pulled away, uh, either with a team or by yourself, and able to to kind of really focus in on something and experiment and feel a risk-free environment to, to experiment, you have all those pieces in place, and you're much more likely to use your backstage self, which is much more risk-taking um, and creative. And so I think there's there's uh, there is something to that, and a lot of office environments in the United States anyway. They're uh, very open, and they're huge. there's like 50 people on a floor that's open. And my thinking, it depends on what you do, of course, but my thinking is that it really needs to be smaller groups of people. That's what Europe is moving towards, is smaller teams, that they're trusted teams. They know each other. They work together every day, um, and there's a, a risk-taking you know, uh, uh, safeness within the group um, versus you know, a place that maybe – you might feel uncomfortable because you just don't know if your boss or anybody else might, could walk by at any time. Well, uh, let's go on um, to, to some of the things you do to uh, 
uh, make a health, for a healthier workplace, please. So, um, in addition to uh, the sit-to-stand desks, um, one of the big findings uh, that has been part of um, occupational health for a long time is this idea that of choice or limited choice being good, um, that workers with more control and autonomy and also just choice about how, when, and where they work are less likely to have heart disease. They're also less likely to have uh, stress in the work environment because they're in control of it, right? They're not being micromanaged or, and or they just have some flexibility on what they're most comfortable um, in getting work done. So if you can, if you are um, an individual or a team leader who knows that the team can have some flexibility about how, when, and where they work, try it. Um, I think that is anything from you know, working alternative hours to um, working in different settings around a, a particular office. Um, some people like to crunch on, you know, sit in cafe areas and work, and it just works better for them. Um, and some people, like myself, um, other people like to, you know, cover themselves uh, up and work in an office space and just be, you know, alone for a long period of time, which is great. And it also our work varies. So having that um, options for different ways of working um, to accommodate work and life is great. Um, another one is one of my favorites. is um, called It's called biophilia. We have, as humans, this preference to be in and among nature. And so there's all this evidence that uh, the more that we are around green space, that we have um, wood in our environments, natural wood. You have to see the wood grain. You can't paint it. Um, but if you see the wood grain, it's very psychologically restorative. Um, plants, it can even be fake plants if they're realistic looking, um, do have that effect. And um, all these studies of people, you know, working away and they, you know, at their laptop crunching and then looking off to the side and seeing green space and even or a plant or a fake plant, even that will will restore and kind of um, kind of bring you home <laughs> to a relaxing place in your brain. So um, there are all kinds of things uh, today that are called biophilic, um, which are uh, not necessarily actual plants, but kind of looks sort of kind of like a, a screen with um, leaves or, or trees embedded in it that look or mimic like nature. Even that is psychologically restorative. Um, same thing with using images of landscapes on your wall. What about using fish? Aquarium. Great way so. or water, uh, water features, um, music sometimes that always is a little bit, uh, you know, touchy. Uh, different people have different music tastes. Interestingly, uh, also the smell of lemon um, is a very productive smell, um, and I don't know about psychologically restorative, but lemon and peppermint are kind of the, the two smells that um, have been shown over lots of different uh, groups to actually increase productivity. Hmm. Uh, the name of your book again and where people can get it? Uh, the Healthy Workplace. Uh, wherever books are sold, you can find it, and you can also go to leestringer.com where I publish all kinds of research um, as it comes out. Well, spell out, Lee, because you spell it differently. <laughs> I do. L-E-I-G-H, like Vivian Lee, um, and last name Stringer, S-T-R-I-N-G-E-R.com. Uh, I wonder, um, do you have time to stay on? We have another guest who wants to. Um, well, I'm going to bring our next guest in and uh, introduce... I hope I pronounced the name correctly. Amini 
Kefik, co-founder of... You got <laughs> Okay. Well, welcome to the program. You're Chief Strategy Officer for, for Stamps. And welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, uh, go ahead, please. You, you're the guest. I, I you, took a you lot were... of notes on, on the working meeting, on the workplace. I'm a big fan of alternate workspaces, making environments the way people want to have them. I love the discussion about natural wood. Uh, we've tested different, we have three floors with three different configurations of workspaces to test and play around with it. So I really enjoyed the, the previous segment. I took some notes down very similar to what we've done. And I kind of chuckled to myself. I said, maybe we're doing something right. <laughs> you want to say anything, Lee? <laughs> no, I'm thrilled to hear that um, you're trying it. That's fantastic. And um, the thing is, it's all additive. I mean, you can always try um, layering on uh, new, new pilot ideas and seeing how people react to them. Um, I think one of the important things that I've, I've learned is measuring, um, you know, capturing satisfaction or um, just checking in with folks and seeing what really is working. Um, with them because it's it's easy to get um, pulled into the trends and you want to make sure that they're um, you know what you're trying is really authentic for your organization and, and makes sense. Oh yeah, we got feedback all right. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. It's hard not to. People are very outspoken about the base. Yeah, that's what I like. Now, tell us, I mean, do do I pronounce it Amine or Amin? It's a mean. The E is silent. It, it's just a, a legacy from uh, being born in a, in a, in a French or having the name that has a French spelling. So the, the E is uh, silent, and it's a mean. Well, I mean, welcome to the program, and I guarantee you people will remember your name now. Tell us about you're with Stamps. So, so tell us a little bit first about yourself personally, about how you came to be with Stamps. Etc. Just so we have a little bit of background on you. Uh, great. Um, so in November last year, uh, the company I founded uh, got acquired by Stamps.com. So my background is I'm the founder of a company called Indicia, E-N-D-I-C-I-A, and uh, we're in the online uh, e-commerce uh, shipping space. And what that means, we develop software and solutions or e-commerce sellers uh, to ship their product. So for example, if you buy something online or even uh, in a catalog or, uh, or you go into a store and they ship something to you, there's a high likelihood that the label on the outside of the package would either have an Indicia uh, emblem or a stamps.com emblem now. And um, we've been doing that for, for since 2000. And uh, you know we just help uh, shippers ship domestically and internationally. About 95% of the business is based in the U.S. We also do some uh, business in France and very little in, in, in a couple of other countries. But um, uh, so we do a whole bunch of stuff about around selling and online and cross-border and you know label shipping, tracking. You know if you get an email notification that says, hey, your package is on its way, click here for your tracking number. It might be generated by one of our systems. So um, 
Um, been doing that, like I said, about 16 years, joined the stamps.com family of companies in, in November <coughs> of last year. And then a couple of months ago, we integrated the two companies, and now I'm, I'm the chief strategy officer for stamps.com and all the subsidiaries. So, uh, and doing a whole bunch of other things in international, which is part of my background, and, and uh, uh, some of the government relations, since that's a lot of what we do. We work a lot with the Postal Service. So, glad to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Well, uh, 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 and I asked Lee to stay on because, well, we can have an interactive conversation. But f tell me a little bit um, your ideas of how one becomes innovative, um, uh, how one brings the innovation to uh, companies, and, and your ideas. The, the floor is open. So, so. You know, I always start by listening to the customer. I, I think sort of, I know that sometimes it's, it's overblown, but the reality is until you walk in your customer's shoes or, or, and, and, and you won't really know things. So know, know your customer really well. And part of it is identifying who your customer is because some companies make the mistake of thinking they're serving a certain market, but they're really serving something else. I take the time to literally, you know, we've been in warehouses and shipping rooms. I'll pack boxes, put tape, walk them down to the post office and live the life. Uh, follow, follow the box sometimes and, and see all the different pain points along the way and have open eyes. I think sort of have an engineering background, but, but a, a business practice. So between the two, you look at things a little differently and you try and look at obstacles, which people may take for granted as, as that is what it is. And, and you sort of try and imagine those obstacles are not there. It's how do you put a tunnel through a mountain well, how do you get to the other side is more important. Or, so keeping that in mind, then you find ways to solve things, and, and I think that spurs innovation. And keep your ears open. Innovation comes in a lot of different places. I mean, you're talking about the workspace, and I mean, there's so much innovation in the workspace and theories, but I think, uh, uh, like, like Lee said, until, until you get that feedback and suddenly realize that for your environment, for your culture, for your building, for your lighting structure, your place in your, your part of the country, you get all those feedback, you kind of walk it a bit, you try it and you find out, oops, it works, it doesn't work. So the other thing is piloting and trying and testing, getting feedback, you know, reiterating, you know, being ready to, to, to throw away an idea that you may have been passionate about, finding out quickly. We used to call it failing forward. Some people say failing fast, but fail fast and move forward. You know, learn from those experiences. I don't necessarily call them mistakes. Uh, they're usually experiences and, and, and adjusting. So it, it's a lot of different ways. And also make it fit your personality because some people you can't force innovation. So know who's the who are the people, put the people in the right place to be innovative or the right people in the right positions. Um, and, and you see great things come out. Well, that sounds great. Keep going. You're doing a good job. I don't have to ask questions. <laughs> so it's funny, I mean, you talk about even the, the whole concept of the Indicia creation was way back in, 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 in the 80s, our consulting days. Uh, the company went through a couple of different transitions. We're a small business. We were founded by a professor of mine at, at, at Stanford. And being engineering background, we were always looking to solve problems. And, and so we had developed some software. Actually, we started at Solar Energy, and then that went away. So. You know, we had to be innovative to survive, and we suddenly realized some of our clients 
valued us for office automation more than they did for our engineering. So we started automating some engineering tasks and got onto this automating of contracts. Sounded like a good thing. We understood the content of the contracts. And then we were printing these contracts on the first beautiful laser printers, but you had to go put them in an envelope, and the envelope you went to a typewriter. And at one point it hit us that the only ugly thing we, was in our hand was this, this, this envelope. So we started automating the printing of an envelope, and there weren't any envelope feeders in the 80s. So we kind of, a little bit of spray mounting and, and, and a little wood to create an envelope feeder. We created an envelope feeder so that we could print it with a laser printer. At the time we printed the whole envelope with a laser printer, we looked at it and I said, hmm, the only thing left is the stamp. So we put out patents in the 80s. It took us like 12 years to convince the Postal Service that this was a viable, you know, computers were not evil and, and you could use them to print uh, this, this postage, which is currency, right? You're printing currency on a computer and, and, and the whole security processes weren't in place in the early 90s and it wasn't until about, you know, 2000, 99, 2000 that those were acceptable. And stamps.com and Disha were the pioneers in that space. And so by the time the 99-2000 came along, everybody was excited about small businesses. You know, you were printing stamps. Okay, great. Take the next step of innovation and failing forward. We quickly realized you could get stamps in a lot of places. But the 99-2000, people were buying online, and you could see this whole pain point about shipping that package. So we were at the post office, and you could see people were standing in line. You get a tracking number, right? to uh, pay for online insurance. And for those, guys, for those folks that were selling internationally, they had to figure out how to do these customs forms. Thus, being innovators and, and looking at the environment around us, within eight, nine months, at the time we were about 20 people, self-funded, we had no outside funding, so we had to compete based on differentiation and, and being smart about solutions. We solved those three problems, automated them so that a customer could print a shipping label with a tracking number, could buy online insurance, and could print out a customs form. We were about three to four years ahead of anybody else and put out the solution online. So you're talking internet lines weren't that fast in 2001, you know, so, but the online community just took it up and they became our marketing arm. So the innovation really and creativity spurred the whole growth of the company. We had no money left for marketing. So we were definitely uh, marketed online by a lot of our uh, fans. We had people bowing at our booth because we saved them time. You know, they no longer had to go, you know, take an hour out of the day to drop off their parcels, and they could do it right from their computers. The post office could pick it up, and it spurred a whole bunch of innovation with us and the Postal Service to advance this whole concept off shipping to the point that last year, between Stamps.com and Indisha, we process close to a billion transactions. And, and it's just phenomenal how much that's taken off. And it started all with that idea of looking at custom people, you know, which was accepted at the time. You just basically went, you had your package weighed, and you got a tracking number, and you highlighted it in green so people saw it. And, but no, we could automate all that. So that, that, that's how we've, we've uh, defined our whole existence. Is, is innovation being two years ahead, and we continue to drive innovation in industry to continue to think what, what are online sellers or retailers, as retail transforms also, going to need in two years, and let's get it to them now so that we can continue to be ahead of the curve. Oh, 
That's, that's fascinating. I have to ask you a question before we go further. Um, are you still selling the idea that you can create your own stamp with your own marketing uh, message in it and, and still be legal with the uh, U.S. Postal? Yes. It's a smaller part of our business, but uh, it's the custom postage product. We have it under two brand names, Photo Stamps and Picture of Postage. Um, and you can, as an individual or as a business, put a picture as long as you own it or you have the trademark for it. You can put a picture on a stamp and we produce a sheet of 10, 20, or whatever you want of postage stamps with that picture. You know, maybe your dog, maybe your company logo, maybe pictures of a, of a trip you did. I remember my kids when they were younger, we had our rabbit on a stamp, we had our dog on a stamp, and you know, when the kids in kindergarten did that walk to the post office, they had their custom stamps in hand. So, so yes, you can still do that. So if you want your, your logo or, or I, I, you know, I, I, I never put my picture on the stamp. I put the kids, but not me. Uh, <laughs> you can do that today. Um, I, I find it very interesting. Um, uh, let's go a, a little further. Uh, I see our next guest is on, and I want, uh, and he's got a fascinating study that I, uh, I want to bring to the floor and hope that the two of you can stay on to discuss it. Um, uh, uh, but I, I have a, another question for you. I mean, what do you think are the keys to creating uh, new products and, and be innovation, innovative in the brands? What are the two or three things that you think need, uh, to be innovative? That's a good question. Key things. So, so uh, you know, being innovative versus having a spirit of innovation. Um, and, and I might play around with that word a bit. First, you've got to be able to accept, and I, and I really I don't want to start with a negative, but, but I am anyway. <laughs> you've got to accept like failures because, you know, you may have 10 ideas, one goes forward. You've got to be able to recognize that early. And I think that's helped us a lot. We, we tend to, especially in the software world, it's a bit easier. But now you, know, you can 3D print something, right, and, and before you have a six-month manufacturing cycle. So being able to try and experiment and get some customer feedback very early. So in other, in other words, instead of getting a 100% solution, get a 60% solution, test it, try it, get feedback, and then iterate. Um, that might be like maybe third on the list, but, but it is very important because I see companies have three-year manufacturing cycles or innovation cycles. The reality is it's too late. You know, a car model all of a sudden comes out and it looks ugly or something and, and, and can't with a three-year cycle. So you, know, you hear about companies reducing their cycles, but I think you need those. Today, the, the patience level in consumers is very low. So you've got to be able to come up with something fast, get feedback, adjust, iterate, and go forward. Um, I, w I go back to my first thing is know, know thy customer. Um, it's critical that you know who you are and your customer and where you have the right to win. If I'm a software company and I suddenly am selling chocolates, you know, I don't care how innovative I am. It's just you said the word brand. My brand doesn't hold up to that. So know your limits. Uh, innovation for the sake of innovation, that might be an R&D lab, but if you're a company um, you know, we're not in the business of ideation. We're in the business of solving customer problems and, 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 and making a return for our shareholders as, as we're a public company right now. So you've got to be able to not fall in the trap 
at least in our case, of, of just creating things that aren't usable. Maybe kind of cool, great coffee talk, but it, it's not going to solve a problem. So I think our engineering roots have always been very healthy for us, but pretty practical, and, and I think practical is a good word to see what really solves the problem and, and knowing the, the area in which you're going to solve that problem. You can have a great fast car, but if you're inside New York City, it doesn't do you any good, right? I mean, you, you need an open highway or a racetrack. Um, so, so know the area you're in. And um, I, I would say just, again, make sure you are ready to adjust and not be too stuck with your idea. I, I, I see, especially in our software industry sometimes, where whether it's pricing, you know, pricing is part of innovation too, and um, um, whether it's pricing, it's, it's branding, it's um, 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 the actual functionality, um, be, be uh, humble. Uh, don't just force it down somebody's throat. And I see that happening where you some, every now and then you'll see something comes out and you're like, well, I don't want this. And, and I'm not saying, you know, want, cater to the 1%, but keep your ears open, get that feedback, uh, and, and be humble about it, not arrogant about, about how you bring something out. So, so th those would be sort of some of my rules, some of my, my, my ways I look at things. Um, and, and, uh, um, and don't be afraid to experiment, and don't be afraid to try a small, simple thing and take feedback. Boy, it's so hard for some people to take feedback. Take that feedback, be humble. So those are my points. Well, you, you certainly covered it all. Now we have uh, another guest that I'd like to uh, bring on board. And if you, Amin and Lee, if you both have time, it's all about uh, a survey involving women and online lending, but, but I think it has, um, uh, importance for you. Do you mind st staying on? Glad to. Okay. <laughs> Our next guest, I'm trying to, is, is Braden. And you know what, Braden? Your, uh, Fundera did not give me your last name. So, it's Braden McCarthy. Braden McCarthy. Nice to be here with you. Well, okay. Uh, Braden, because you have a hard stop at 12, I'm going to skip a lot about your personal. You're bringing what I find to be a fascinating study about women business owners and, and online lending. And I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you say some of the, some of the uh, um, results of the survey. And then uh, Amin or Lee can jump in at any point. How's that? That sounds great. Thanks, Don. Um, well, first off, again, thanks right for having ahead. us on the program. Th thanks again for having us on the program. So in terms of the study we, we've come out with uh, at the beginning of last week, it's one of the first comprehensive looks at women business owners' access to credits. That's access to loans, access to credit cards, access to charge cards, access to cash advances, the kind of entire credit landscape um, that women have access to. Um, and one of the big takeaways is something that should be a foregone conclusion to all of us which is that despite all the progress that we've made in the fight for gender equality, we've still got a ways to go. Because when we look at our data, women entrepreneurs struggle to receive the same opportunities as male entrepreneurs, and that's particularly true when you look at access to credit. 
So just a few stats to underscore the points, and then I'll let folks respond. Um, what we found is that women entrepreneurs make about 30% less than male entrepreneurs do, which is actually consistent with broader economic data that the average female worker makes less than men do, about 79 cents to the dollar. We also found that women entrepreneurs have lower credit scores than men with a 15-point difference between their averages. Um, and credit scores being incredibly important when you're looking at deciding the creditworthiness of a borrower, that's a big number and a big gap. We also show that even when you try to control for things like revenue and for creditworthiness, women entrepreneurs ask for less financing when applying for credit than men do. They ask for about $35,000 less, which, is, which seemed to be consistent with broader economic research that women are less likely to ask for raises at work than men are. Um, an, another pretty startling um, stat before I let folks respond, um, women get asked get approved for business loans at a lower rate than men do. But even more startlingly, when women are, uh, are actually approved, they pay higher rates and receive less funding than male counterparts do. So, you know, it's pretty depressing stuff up and down the line. And as I mentioned, it just further underscores um, that despite all the progress we've made in the fight for gender equality, we've still got a ways to go. Well, I'm going to start with Lee. You want to? Would you like to comment on that, Lee? Just a question. Um, how many? Maybe you said it, but how many um, women entrepreneurs versus men entrepreneurs are asking for for this financing? Sure. So, I mean, this it's a good question. So it's a fairly broad and deep sample set. So we asked about 8,423 business owners um, that really span geography, span business type. Um, span industry um, and span business size. Um, and we, have, we have 8,423 to submit a gender identification, and this data is based off of roughly one quarter of that number, about 2,200 that I'd self-identified as women. Um, the other three quarters self-identified as men, of course. Um, and out of that group, about 887 successfully received funding, 669 men and 218 women. So, in other words, only 25% of funded small business uh, financing applicants were women, um, which is broadly in keeping with the percentage of women who filled out um, the survey in the first go. And do you feel like that's reflective of the percentage in, in the world, <laughs> in the marketplace? It, it does, yeah. I mean, so it, it, it's a, I mean, uh, just a, a, a point on, on, on progress we've made over the course of the past generation. So in 1972, women entrepreneurs made up only 5% of all entrepreneurs. But today, women-owned businesses account for about 29% of all firms. No question that's significant progress. Um, you know, that means that female entrepreneurs run more than 10.6 million companies. Um, they account for over $1.3 trillion in revenue, and they employ about 8 million workers nationwide. So again, no question we've made progress in the fight toward gender equality, but I think these, uh, these stats I went through, particularly on the revenue differential between men and women, um, as well as the credit score differential between male entrepreneur and female entrepreneur, show that we've got a lot more work to do. I mean, Did do you, you find want, about... Uh, oh, so great. Well, we'll let Lee finish your question. Go ahead, then, Amina, <laughs> let, let you ask. Well, just real quick about demographics. So millennials versus boomers versus Gen X. Um, was there any um, helpful filters there that, that told you anything? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's I think, interesting to note is that um, it shouldn't be surprising given millennials' use of technology in their everyday life. 
Um, but um, this is an online survey um, of um, small businesses that have been funded at Fundera to date. Fundera is an online marketplace. Um, so if you Google small business loan right now, um, Fundera is going to be one of the top two results you're going to see. Um, we, uh, we, we basically help small business owners um, make the process of finding a loan a dead simple. So similar to how a kayak works, we built a site that helps small business owners compare all their credit options on one site, disclose things like interest rates and fees so they can make apples-to-apples comparisons, and then let them choose the option that's the best fit for their business once they're empowered with all that information. So I think one, one interesting demographic point there um, is that what we've found is um, millennials tend to over-index in online lending. Um, it shouldn't be surprising given that that's what they're used to. They're, they're used to going online to look for a flight. They're used to going online to shop at Amazon versus walking into a, a Walmart superstore. Um, and that certainly bears out across gender identity. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of how women entrepreneurs um, and the kind of the troubles they face break down when you're looking at younger entrepreneurs versus um, more established entrepreneurs, um, that's kind of outside of the bounds of this study. You're a very impressive command of the study. I mean, would you want to ask any questions uh, about yeah. the, the study? Yeah, it, it's just a lot of the Indicia and Stance customers are online sellers. We tend to see uh, a high number of, of women entrepreneurs in the space. So any chance your data based on the business types would indicate how many would be online sellers or, or selling goods online or, or something along those lines? Because I, I'm, I'm going to guess you may have a higher number of women entrepreneurs who would start an online business, and I wonder how many of those are getting funding. Uh, I, I, I'm going to guess we have a higher number of women in that category. I just don't know how many get online funding. So I don't know if you categorized it that way at all. Yeah, so if you, if you look at the data set, so as I mentioned, about 8,000 different types of businesses, um, but it really runs the whole gamut uh, by industry. So um, our customers come from about 10 different verticals, and that is consistent with this survey. So that's retail, that's restaurant and, um, and, uh, and bars, that's general contractors, that's marketing businesses, um, healthcare businesses, lots of dentists and doctor's offices. Um, no one vertical represents more than 10%. Um, of the of the entire sample size, as well as of the broader Fundera population, which to date is about $210 million in loans secured on the platform. But no question, I mean, it does include online businesses. Um, those tend to be more qualified for startup loans, which tend to be more likely yep. to be funded through your personal loan, or sorry, your personal credits. Um, but I think one of the things that the study does shed light on there is when you're looking at trying to qualify for a personal loan, one of the most decisive factors in determining if you are approved or not and in what rate you will receive um, is your credit score. So the fact that men and women have a 15 percentage point difference uh, in terms of their credit score um, is pretty startling when it comes to those types of businesses. Um, I mean, if you look at it, um, about 12.8% um, of those surveyed had a, a FICO score um, that was sub 580, kind of near like the, the subprime level. Um, that compares to only about 8% of men. If you look at the next rung up, um, about 16% of women had a FICO score of about uh, anywhere from 580 to 620. That compares to only 12% of men. Um, and then really in the, in the kind of the upper quintiles, when you start looking at um, how the FICO breaks out, 
So 700 FICO score plus, the kind of um, the holy grail of credit score. Only about 20% of women have a score that's in that, that that's 700 plus, whereas nearly 30% of men have a score that's 700 plus. So again, just, just to underscore the difficulty a lot of these entrepreneurs are going to face when looking to get decisions by lenders. Um, that's true from a business perspective. It's also true if you're a startup looking for a loan more on your personal credit. Braden, is this a study available so people can look at it? It is, yes. I mean, it, any, any user, any listener can go to uh, fundera.com um, right now and you'll, you'll see the survey. Um, we're also happy to make it available um, on, uh, on your site um, for those who want to see it. Um, and uh, you know, to anyone who uh, has difficulty finding it that way, feel free to shoot me an email um, at braden at fundera.com. That's B-R-A-Y-D-E-N at fundera.com, F-U-N-D-E-R-A.com. Well, um, my question, it's interesting. Uh, my understanding, the last uh, four years, uh, almost 49% of all um, new business formations have been women-owned. Um, uh, um, uh, did you uh, uh, try to account for new new companies, um, uh, which might change the demographics and uh, uh, of the study? Uh, and I could be wrong on the figure, but um, this is coming from the Department of Labor, so uh, and the IRS. Um, That's right. Any, yes. any thoughts? That, that's right. I mean, when you look at a lot of the kind of the progress in startup creation, startup formation, as economists like to call it, um, a lot of that is coming from uh, minority-owned businesses, African-American and Hispanic-owned businesses, as well as women-owned businesses. Part of that, um, just you know, to talk about the unintended consequences, is actually um, people who are not being able to make ends meet um, at uh, their current job due to broader wage stagnation in this country who are taking out a second job, either as a consultant or um, you know, helping to mow lawns on weekends, whatever the case might be, those get counted as new businesses. Um, and so you really have to kind of decipher what is a new business that is the kind of the main term priority of that individual that's going to grow into a larger business and what is more of a kind of lifestyle business that is uh, it, that's been created to help supplement income that 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 uh, that individual is not getting in their primary job. Um, but that's just that's a, a, a an aside. If you look at though um, the kind of uh, where startup formation is happening, no question, um, women are helping to lead the charge. I think this is why we find the study so um, discouraging um, and, and troublesome. Um, you know, when you look at uh, starting a business today, one of the biggest challenges any business owner is going to tell you um, is finding a lot. So, you know, I think if you ask a lot of your listeners, they'd say it's one of their biggest obstacles, obstacles, I should say, from navigating the, the labyrinth of lenders to the, the three-inch thick paperwork, trying to figure out the difference between a term loan and a cash advance and a credit card and a charge card. You know, it, it's, it's confusing stuff. Um, and if you look at approval rates um, from banks, um, for, to those that are looking to get, get funded, they can be anywhere from 50 to 80% of all those who apply get turned down, um, which is a huge problem. Uh, because if you, get, if you can't get access to a loan, it's oftentimes difficult to grow your business or meet your, um, your, your payroll or buy that next piece of inventory um, to grow your revenue. 
Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we started Fundera. Um, as I mentioned, our goal is, is to make the process of finding a loan as simple as possible. Um, so, you know, the bottom line is that Fundera is trying to do um, uh, what the Internet, uh, do to small business lending, what the Internet has done in a host of other sectors. I mentioned kayak in the travel industry, of course, Amazon in the retail sector. But the goal is to make the process of finding a loan a lot simpler and totally transparent to that borrower. Um, because we think one of the reasons that folks don't get approved and don't apply is that they get discouraged by the process. Um, and so well, end up well, going Braden, where... Yeah. But Braden, let me ask you the $64 question. Are your yeah. standards for granting a loan um, uh, uh, easier in terms of uh, hoops to go through? And um, in short, if, if I don't get a loan from a bank, um, why will, would I get a loan from you? Yeah, no, it's a good a question. Look, I mean, I, it's a good question. So I think that um, the important distinction here is that a bank loan is only one type of credit product that is available to a borrower. Um, it's the one that they are maybe maybe most top of mind because they have a deposit account with a Chase or a Wells Fargo or a B of A, and those guys are always kind of pummeling those, those, those borrowers with, hey, we can give you a bank loan if you want to start up a business. Hey, we can give you a bank loan if you want to help grow your business. Um, but it's only one type of product that's available. So if you look at the full suite of products that a small business owner could qualify for, um, it's actually pretty significant. Um, so just to kind of go down the list, um, SBA loans being the kind of alternative to a bank loan. It's very, very similar in that it is a term loan um, to a borrower, um, but it comes with an SBA guarantee. It's meant to be a second look for small business owners um, that don't get approved by a bank loan in their own merit. The SBA guarantee is meant to help that lender make that loan so that borrower gets funded and can help, create, help grow their business and create jobs. In addition to that, you also have medium-term loans and short-term loans from the likes of a lot of online lenders. On the medium-term side, you have Lending Club, you have Funding Circle, you have Foundation. On the shorter-term side, you have On Deck, Can Capital, Cabbage, and others. Um, and that's just in the kind of medium-term and short-term loan side. But you also have invoice financing, business lines of credit, um, cash advances, personal loans, charge cards, credit cards, um, commercial real estate loans. So I think you know, the, the fundamental goal is lenders lend at different rates and with different risk profiles. But right now, because the process of applying for a loan um, hasn't changed much over the course of the past 50, 60 years, it's kind of the same way my dad, who's a small business owner in upstate New York, did uh, or, or applied for a loan back in the late 80s when he was looking to start his business. You walk into a bank, you fill up their paperwork, you wait weeks, sometimes months for them to get back to you. Um, what we are trying to do, and I think what the Internet uh, enables, is complete choice to a borrower so they understand when a bank loan could make sense, they understand when an SBA loan could make sense, and they understand when alternative financing um, from online lenders makes sense. Um, just to get, you know, in full disclosure, so anywhere from a quarter to a third of, of uh, a volume on the platform to date, um, which is about $210 million overall, comes from the SBA. Um, about another quarter to a third comes from medium-term lenders. I, I mentioned Lending Club, Funding Circle, and others. Um, those loans can vary from you know, uh, a year to, to, to two years. Um, there's some go even higher than that, um, with rates that can vary from you know, 12% all the way up to 25%. Um, and we also have short-term loans on the platform as well, um, which can be anywhere from about a third uh, to a quarter as well. Well... That, that was a great commercial, uh, Braden, and we appreciate it. 
but uh, I've gone on your site as we've been talking. I'm fascinated. But we're getting close to the end of the hour, and we're going to start with – we started out with Lee Stringer, and we're going to finish. Lee, again, your book and uh, where people can reach you. Uh, LeeStringer.com and The Healthy Workplace. Okay. Uh, I mean, um, I know it's stamp, uh, stamps.com. You've been around a while. Wel- welcome to this world. What, 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 what will your final thoughts be? You know, we, we, I, I heard the, the, the great workplace. I heard about online lending, and, and I think sort of uh, I compliment both. And, and uh, I think uh, I, I cater to the, we cater to the world of online sellers and entrepreneurs who sometimes go out and get loans. But I also think you know, the online world has, has helped uh, democratize that whole process, which, which I like what, what I heard. Um, but um, I would encourage sort of any online, uh, any, any small business as they start their business to look at their options and one of the things as they start, you know, creating a product or selling online or trying to get a credit line is they got to ship that product at one point. And, and I think that's what we do for a lot of these online sellers. We enable them to get their goods to their customers. So if you want to know more about us, I'm going to do the plug. You can go to indicia.com, E-N-D-I-C-I-A.com or stamps.com and find out more about options for small sellers to grow their business and, and online, the online world and, and e-commerce and and have some fun doing that. So thank you for your time. Appreciate being on the show. Thank you for being on the show uh, and uh, giving us uh, some really interesting information. Braden, you get to be the last. Uh, tell us again uh, uh, where people can get to study or talk to you. Sure. So I mean, first, I would just say any any small business owner that's out there that's listening, that's looking to find a loan, can call into 1-800-FUNDERA. That's 1-800-386-3372. Um, and you can also ask me individually you speak with on the phone for a copy of the study. Uh, but to those um, who, who just want to go online and find it, you can go, go to www.fundera.com. Um, and go to resources, and it will be right there. Um, if you can't find it, shoot me an email at Braden at Fundera.com. That's B-R-A-Y-D-E-N at F-U-N-D-E-R-A.com. Well, thank you all, to, all for being on the show. And uh, I know I, I learned a lot, and I hope our audience did as well. Thank you, and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you Thanks, for listening Tom. tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine.